And we have a chart we're confronted with, and uh, you'll see bars on either side. And those bars you're going to put arrows on before the night is over. They are relationship bars. Who relates to who, upward or downward? So you're going to put arrows pointing up or pointing down in terms of those relationships. You'll see them on the left-hand side and the right-hand side of your chart. And so we begin with the head of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the husband, he's the head, he is the, who we worship. He is the head of the church. Uh, he, and he has a relationship to everyone below him. So there should be an arrow pointing down as he relates to us. Uh, and on both sides. So he's going to relate to the pastors in our chart. Uh, he's also going to relate to, on the other side of, on the right-hand side of the chart, he's going to relate to the membership as well. So it is not that Jesus Christ relates to me and now I relate that to you uh, in that kind, that's called a mediator. And Jesus Christ is the mediator for the church. So while he has a relationship with the, with the leadership and the organization of the church, it is not, it, his, that relationship is not intermingled, that is intermediary, it is not between you and him. So he also has a personal relationship with everyone in the church. And so those arrows both go down. So he still has a relationship with everyone below him in the chart, uh, and there is no other intermediary. Uh, but there is a distinction. And uh, we can have a relationship at, on multiple levels. I think all of us know that. We all have various relationships on multiple levels, some that are more intimate than others and, uh, and uh, for different purposes. And sometimes I have a relationship with my wife very different in some environments than I have in other environments. My relationship with my wife is very formal here in church, more formal than it is in our home, and then even less formal when it's uh, in, our, in privacy, right? And so we have, even within our relationships, we recognize that certain environments demands different relationships. And we see that God uh, has a relationship with everyone in the church, so he has that, that uh, direction and his responsibility is listed here. Uh, Colossians 1.18 talks about that he is the one who directs the church. Let's go ahead and read that one. You should be familiar with the other one here today, tonight, but let's just make sure. Uh, I was going to read the other one, but you already know that. You should already have that one known. Colossians chapter 1. We can certainly go into the Corinthian passages about Christ being the head of the church as well. Uh, it says that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so he is the head, and the head is the one that is the, uh, that which directs all the rest. And so I am not the head of the church. He is the head of the church. And he leads it, not only in being the highest in it, but also being the, the one who directs, who gives uh, commands to be obeyed. Uh, he also authorizes the church. Remember in Matthew 28, uh, 18, 19, 20, uh, he says, all power is given to me 
in heaven on earth, go therefore and make disciples of every nation. So he, by the authority that he has, all power is given to me, go therefore and make disciples, is his authorization to the church, that transference of power. That is, that he has authorized us to do certain things. And those certain things he has authorized us to do by his power, by the power of his resurrection, uh, is make disciples, uh, baptize them, and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, and he'll be with us always. And so we have this directive, certainly, uh, but we also have the authority to exercise that. And so uh, as any good boss or manager or owner would do, once you have your uh, personnel in place and trained, you should give them authority to do their job. Go out and do their job and don't micromanage. And God doesn't do that. He has given us that authority uh, in, a, in addition to the instruction of what to do. He has given us the authority to actually conduct that. Uh, that makes us his body. And the implication or application for the church is that we are to glorify him. We are to know his word and obey it because uh, he is the one who leads us. Uh, in our organizational chart here, we're going to talk now about the relationship of the pastors, elders, bishops. In our position, we would contend that all of those are the same. Now, lots of churches have lots of different ideas of organization, correct? Um, some are very complex and extensive, uh, and you go from those all the way to those who it's pretty much absent <laughs> of any organizational structure, uh, and, and you'll have everything in between. And so when we look at the word pastor, which is a shepherding term, a relational term, we look at the word bishop or overseer, those two terms are the same, uh, that is really a term of authority and of rank. And we have the term elder referring to a place of, of experience and wisdom or of, um, of uh, respect. And so we have this, these relationships. We would contend they all describe the same office uh, within the church. That these aren't three separate entities that are stacked above and below each other, but rather they describe the same person, the same office, same position, and so you could, we, why do we choose pastor, uh, and other churches choose bishop, um, a lot of your uh, predominantly black churches prefer bishop for some reason, they use bishop a lot, um, and love, a lot of them love the word reverend, uh, reverend so-and-so, reverend this, uh, which is really not a biblical term at all, uh, why do we choose pastor, not elder, a lot of churches are elder rule, they use elder this, elder that. And that is, really came into vogue in the 80s um, as well. Uh, and that we use more and more word elders to refer to this position, uh, which is more Presbyterian. The Presbyterians have ruling elders and ministering or serving elders. And so you have the ruling elders, what you would call pastor, and the serving elders is what you would call a deacon, but then they also have deacons. So... Um, so they have a, a little more hierarchy, and so that became very popular with the uh, reform movement really taking captive Baptist churches. It became more prevalent. But we use the term pastor predominantly. It is perhaps the lowest in terms of uh, terms used. It is used occasionally in Scripture. And so 
we want to talk about the pastor's role, uh, responsibilities, and how he is chosen. And then we're going to do the same with the deacons, and then how they relate to the members. And so uh, we are not going from top to bottom. As you see on the one side, we have all these bars. And so the pastor has a relationship with God, Jesus Christ. He has a responsibility to Jesus, so there's an arrow up. There's also an arrow down. He has a responsibility uh, to the membership, to the deacons as well. So the arrow needs to go down is also. And so it's not that we lord over the church, uh, because the word pastors, elders, bishops are all about overseeing or managing uh, relational terms. Pastor is the most relational of the term. That is that uh, we are the under-shepherds. And we like that because the term under-shepherd, um, which is pastor, um, implies that we have someone above us, a chief shepherd, and we have responsibility for those um, not under us but around us really because shepherds don't ride on horses. <laughs> um, we, they walk with the sheep. And so uh, it's really, really hard to herd sheep. Uh, you have to shepherd them. Very big difference between those two. You can herd cattle, uh, but you can't do that with sheep. You try running you run horses through sheep and you just scatter them all over the place. Uh, and so it's a relational term. So let's talk about pastors a little bit. And if you have any questions, please bring them up. Uh, we can look at these. So we, what are their main responsibilities? And hopefully most of these, you'll see 1 Peter 5 used extensively, so you might as well turn there. We're going to be studying it a lot down the road um, in our 1 Peter study on Sunday mornings. Uh, this is where we have the word shepherd used directly. Uh, by the way, Acts chapter 6 is a selection of deacons. You might say, well, why do you have that under pastor, elder, bishops? Because the apostles described their job there. They said, it's not our job to serve tables. It's our job to lead the church in the communication, in the study of the word, and the preparation of the word, and in prayer. That this is what we should be spending most of our time on, is prayer and the ministry of the word, and not in serving tables. That our ministry time should be expended there. And, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit when we get over to the, um, actually down the way a little bit, we get to teaching and equipping. Uh, so we are uh, have responsibility before God to be led by Him, and so we need to be responsive to Him. Uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Peter, The elders are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd, the flock of God, that's pastor. So you have elder and pastor in the exact same passage. So when you see shepherd, think of the word pastor. Uh, the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers. And there's the third term. You see them? Boom, boom, boom. They're all three together. So they should be understood as the same office. Not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So we have this, this instruction. You'll see that we're picking up several of these throughout here, that we are, first of all, have an over-shepherd. We have a shepherd above us, a chief shepherd that we are answerable to, that is also our example. And so we have that requirement. The Bible says that we are responsible for every word we teach. 
will be held accountable for it. Every word. And it really makes, that, that's a real pressure point to make short sermons. <laughs> more words you preach, the more you have to be accountable for, right? Uh, but we come to this responsibility to the chief shepherd, but we also find that he has a responsibility to rule. Uh, and so we find that we, we have a rulership, we have an overseeing, uh, but it's different. It's, a, it's not a rule like the world rules. It's not, I'm in charge, you listen to what I say. It is a rule by service as Christ ruled rules. And so, does Christ come in and, and boss you around? No. So how does he rule us? By your submission. He simply invites you by teaching you the truth and by telling you, you don't, you don't have to follow me, but I invite you to follow me or face the consequences. The consequences aren't necessarily immediate, and they, but they are definitely there. There are going to be consequences because all choices have consequences. Every choice you make has a consequence. So you're going to choose whether you serve the Lord or you serve yourself or you serve the world. Um, and so we have this invitation type of rulership that we have responsibility because of the authority underneath the shepherd, chief shepherd, to be shepherds. And that involves guidance. We're going to talk about that. But there is a concept of rulership. And that's really borne out in 1 Timothy, uh, where it specifically says that we are to rule and to rule well. And so let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And, of course, 1 Timothy is the qualifications for overseer uh, in the earlier verses. Uh, but let's look up in verse, start in verse 4. Uh, One who rules his own house well, having his children's submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, let's just stop right there. What word is comparable to rule in verse 5? It says the word how to rule his own house What is the comparable word used in his administration within the church? To take care of. It is not this rule where I sit on a throne and issue edicts. It is one of service to take care of. That concept of rulership. And of course the Bible goes on and talks about the need to rule well. uh, And the ones that... that, uh, the pastors that rule are worthy of, do- of double honor. We have those other passages that aren't listed here, but we have responsibility there to rule. And so that is an ex- exercise of authority. There is some authority that is placed upon the pastor that is not shared within the congregation. The authority there saying, I have a calling of God to uh, be a shepherd to guide, lead, all those things that as Jesus does, that I have that responsibility to do that. And God, just as he has given us authority to do our mission uh, for all the church, he grants that authority to the pastor as well. Now what happens if a pastor gets skewed? If he is in error, doctrinal error, if he is in uh, bad practice, if he is in sin? 
uh, if he is um, abusing authority, uh, what is your response to him? What should be done? This frequently happens in churches. I've had as a missionary, when I was a missionary and I had supporting churches, it happened in a couple of my churches. And I went there and I was home for a year uh, between the uh, establishment of charity and coming and starting this church. We were back in Ohio for a year, so I spent several weeks in several of our churches. And in two of them during that time frame, I had deacons of the church coming to me and saying, what should we do about our pastor? And telling me what's going on. And I'm like, well, I'm probably not the guy that should be addressing this with you. I'm kind of the outsider looking in. But they want it from a pastor's perspective. And so I called a couple other of the older pastors in the fellowship there and said, hey, you might want to call this guy and, and involve them. But at certain levels, um, they had to bring in other pastors to correct and when they weren't responsive to actually remove. So at some point, um, the ultimate authority is certainly in Jesus Christ. And a pastor can claim authority, but there's also a recognition that the membership carries an authority. That's why we use congregational government, is that uh, we are all led by the Holy Spirit and that God um, has this check and balance that we can recognize sin, we can recognize error, and we should call it out and call it for that. In a non-confrontational setting, which most Americans have been duped into of recent years, uh, we just don't do that. We just walk away. And that really isn't a biblical response. But the other response is some churches don't give the pastor any authority, and that isn't right either. Okay, Just because some have abused it doesn't mean it can be abused the other direction. That knee-jerk reaction might say, well, that'll stop it. No, it won't. Okay, what needs to stop it is that we have a right understanding of what it means to, for a pastor, elder bishop, to rule well. And that is a rule that's talking about taking care of and serving and leading by example. And, of course, we can get that in other passages. Um, First and Second Timothy, we go through the whole book, right? And Titus as well, because it's written from a senior pastor to a young pastor. Here's how to treat these certain people in your church. Here's how to lead your church, be an example. Uh, here's what to teach. Here's how to engage leadership. And all of that is there in those books. Okay, So that's pastoral rule, um, which is very different than the concept of organizational rule like we think of in uh, being a boss or being a, a president or a king, something like that. It's a very different concept in Scripture. And then shepherd, as we said, is a relational one. Uh, to teach is in 2 Timothy uh, 2.15 and many other places. Ephesians 4, we could go into there as well. Pastor teachers there in Ephesians 4. Uh, since we're already in 2 Timothy, although I kind of moved away from it. Uh, we're in Timothy. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God. See, I learned that in the King James. So, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so this is written to a pastor, uh, from a pastor, and look up, uh, above it, remind those them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words, no profit to the ruin of the hearers. 
Uh, and so this is an instruction to a pastor. Here's your teaching ministry. Here's what its focus is on. Its focus is on uh, being approved to God yourself. That's exemplariness. And rightly dividing the word truth, that's your doctrine. And so we're going to rightly understand Scripture. We're going to apply it to our life and lead in that fashion. That is the primary leadership is through teaching uh, and we need to be responsive to our own, uh, to God's word ourselves. We should have a teachable spirit as well. Uh, any other questions on responsibility of the pastor? Um, interesting that what is not listed here, that's the hard parts. What did I not list here as primary responsibility of the pastor? See, finding what's not on a list is always harder than evaluating what is and if it should be there. What, is, what do you see missing here that might concern you a little bit? Why doesn't he list this as a pastor's job? Oh, yeah, you don't, <laughs> okay, you don't see pastoral care in terms of visitation and going to the hospital calls and doing weddings and funerals. Um, none of that's listed in here. Okay? Because weddings and funerals is not pastoral work, uh, fundamentally. Uh, it has been attributed to that. Uh, what decides, who has the authority to marry and, you know? Huh? Every society can choose whoever. And, or, you know, and they have, is thus, if you were, some people say, well, I wasn't married in a church, I wasn't married with, by a pastor, so that marriage doesn't count. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah, captain on a ship. I wasn't married in a religious ceremony. In, in Mexico, they have religious and civil weddings, both. You have to have both of them. Is that correct? See, I know that just from... So they have, and then they come up here and say, well, we just had a civil ceremony. We didn't have a religious one. And so they, and I've had some people say, well, I'm not really married. Or, and it's like, no, society dictates those things. And thus, when a heathen gets married to a heathen in a heathen environment, it's still honored by God as a marriage. All right? And so that's not here. What else is in here? Make a budget. <laughs> All right. I am not, yeah, I'm not here to make the budget. It's not my responsibility and to worry about me, make, making the budget or the building or any of that. Don't build the building. They're not listed there. What else not listed there? Discipleship making. All right. I'm going to put... It is a fundamental part of discipleship making, but it's not what I want to talk about, and that is evangelism. Do you see evangelism on the list to be the number one evangelist? No. Now, does Paul tell Timothy, do the work of an evangelist? Yes. But is it his primary responsibility? No. Oddly enough. He carries the responsibility of being evangelist at, I believe on an equal weight that you carry it as a believer, that we carry that equally. I do not have a greater responsibility to be evangelist. Now, has God called some to be evangelists? Yes. 
Are they the only ones that should do evangelism? No. And that's what Paul's saying. Timothy, you're really not an evangelist, but do the work of an evangelist nonetheless. Do that work. And so we should all be doing that work. There are some called to be evangelists that have that, that special uh, gifting of God for that, but it doesn't excuse any of us from doing it. We all carry the commission to make disciples of all nations. So we need to all be doing the work of evangelism. But don't put that down as one of the responsibilities of the pastoral office. It is my responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a member, because I'm a, I'm a part of that group too, uh, but it is not linked directly to the pastoral office. Okay? In terms of elders, overseers, pastor, teachers. Teaching, in terms of discipleship of teaching, leading by example, ruling, uh, uh, these are the responsibilities put upon the pastor to equip the people to do ministry. And so, should I lead by example in terms of those things? Certainly. Do I want to assist you in becoming better evangelists? Yes. But frankly, you have better opportunities than I have to uh, do that, uh, believe it or not, in your environments that you get put into. Let's go on to the next category under pastors. How are they selected? How do we choose our pastor? <laughs> Lightning bolts. Yes. Yeah, then you vote. All right, so you invite him in, you listen to him, you check out their resume, and you vote. Uh, <laughs> isn't it interesting how political that has become? Uh, none of you got to do that in this church. Okay, my family came down here, we started this church, and you've never voted on me. Do you ever think about that? We've been stuck with this guy. We didn't even want to be. We didn't get to choose. All right, first of all, the office, the, the calling to the ministry is a calling of God. It is God's choice. Um, does it, should it be a desire of the candidate? Certainly. God says he who desires to be a bishop desires a good thing. But you still have to be qualified, Correct. So we have God's choosing that, and we uh, skipped Acts 20, 28. Let's go there now under this column in Acts 20. And then we're going to go back in Acts 14 as well, but let's look at Acts 20. This is in, in uh, his work with the Ephesian elders. So there had all, Ephesians, all the elders from Ephesus came down to Miletus to meet with Paul because he couldn't get up there and he, didn't, he was afraid he'd stay in Ephesus because he loved that place so much. Uh, and so he called them down. There is his talk with them. Verse 28, it says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And that goes right around this, with this morning's message doesn't it? And so here's Paul's admonition to these elders. Take heed to yourselves. So I'm going to pay attention to 
my life to the flock, to the church, and who has made me the overseer? Who has made me the... So here we have those same terms again, combined. The idea of overseer and shepherd uh, combined together. Who has made them elders? Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Paul says the Holy Spirit has made you elders, which means what? How did that happen? Was it a dove? Came in, you know, we stand right outside and wait to see who gets a dove on their shoulder? What happens? How does the Holy Spirit make us overseers? Well, let's go to Acts 14. And then we're going to go to Acts 13. <laughs> I'm backtracking, okay? Um, we'll pick up in verse 21. This is Paul on his missionary journey heading back and revisiting all the cities where he had preached. Verse 20 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city, made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So there's the list of towns that he goes back to in the reverse order, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So that's the core of his discipleship message, those three elements. Verse 23, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So who chose the elders of the churches? Who is the they? They had appointed elders in every church. That would be what you would consider because the English language is so sloppy. Uh, but the they there is actually them with the church. And the word appointment is to select by show of hands uh, that they knew who their elders of their church were and they were confirming it. So, we have a confirmation element involved. Um, we certainly have Paul and, uh, involved. Paul is there. Paul and Barthes are there. They're involved in this process. But notice that Paul says, you were selected by the Holy Spirit. We can come along and appoint you in, a, in terms of putting you into that position, but only as far as we are being led by the Holy Spirit. So let's back up to Acts 13. I'm just trying to put together all these verses so we get a broader understanding of it. Acts 13, verse 1, it says, Now in the church that was in Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These five guys, they were the prophets and teachers of the church of Antioch. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so these men were prophets and teachers, and now God says, I want something to these guys. The evidence is that all five are qualified. God says, I want these two guys by the Holy Spirit. Pulls them out and says, commit them to the Lord. Right? And something interesting happened in verse 4. Three, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, who is this they? It's the whole church. The they in verse 3 is not the five sent out Paul and Barnabas. They helped identify Paul and Barnabas, helped the appointment process, 
but it was the church that commissioned us. It says, so being sent out, uh, I'm sorry, verse 3, and then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. What I want to communicate to you is that the selection process of a pastor is a partnership of the church, established leaders, and Holy Spirit. It is these three partnering together. The idea that we select pastors like we do politicians is foreign to the scriptures. There is a selection process of approval that we all are going to fast and pray, lay hands on them, designate them, and appoint them, those words. Um, But we're doing it in partnership with two entities. The Holy Spirit needs to be involved, and established leadership should be involved. What typically happens in our churches is a pastor says, I feel called to leave this church, which usually means, uh, oh, it could be for many different reasons. Um, uh, He's discontent for some reason, whatever, or problems he doesn't want to confront and deal with, or family issues. There's lots of reasons pastors leave churches, uh, and not all of them are bad, uh, but uh, many of them need, should be addressed, I think, more carefully. And so then he leaves, tells the church, I'm going to give you my notice, as if you're the employer and things like that. And then he leaves, and the church is left to grapple with getting his replacement. Correct? And so they form a pulpit committee, and that pulpit committee takes in applications, kind of like the HR of a company, and evaluate them and candidates and, well, we got to have this requirement, that requirement. The pulpit committee decides that. And then they invite a candidate in to come speak, as Bill said, and then the church votes. Horrible process of pastoral selection. Not biblical uh, that I can tell uh, in its entirety. Some portions are, but not in its entirety. Um, We should be in a cooperative thing of the church, established leadership, prophets, teachers, pastors. Um, Paul and Barnabas were there. Remember, they had started the churches. On their way back, the churches having been now had some months to really start to get into God's word and understand their salvation and to recognize God's um, giftedness among their number within their church. Paul comes back through and it says then they appointed elders so you had a not a super mature church but you had at least a church that had taken the time to really see who's gifted at doing what and as God gifted some of us to for pastoral care for pastoral leadership in a church that should be a part of this process that's where the Holy Spirit comes in yes What we do, we, we do on occasion. Well, no, because, right. So uh, the question is, do, is, is there any examples in the Bible of people being outside the church being brought into the church to direct the church? And certainly Paul, in both his letters to Timothy and to Titus, uh, give directives. Um, I want you to go here and you to go there. Um, you're going to have, Titus, you're going to have to go deal with those Cretans. <laughs> you go to Crete and take care of those issues. And, and certainly to go in. And many have said, well, that's a super pastor. That's your bishop role. That's your, your cardinals, people like that that are directing that. Uh, and so there is some evidence 
that they are coming from outside of the local church um, because Paul is bringing a whole entourage. By the time Paul is well into his second missionary journey, he has a dozen men being trained that are traveling with him. I don't think you recognize it. You think it's just Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. But if you really read the itinerary as you go through the book of Acts, you'll find him at one point with 12 men with him walking into town. Uh, he's got Timothy. He's training Timothy. He's training Titus. And Titus he took back into Jerusalem. He's got Erastus. He's got Epaphrodite. He's got all these guys, uh, Aquila and Priscilla at one point. He's got these people that are traveling and ministering with him that he is engaging and preparing many of them for the ministry. And so when we talk about where our pastors, and we've relegated that to seminaries, Bible colleges, and we give some, we can claim some benefit from established leadership through the ordination process, ordaining pastors. And so what is an ordination of a pastor? Churches ordain pastors, a church ordains them, but usually what they do is they have an ordination council convened. And what they do is they invite pastors of like faith and practice in the region to come and sit on the ordination council and examine his life and doctrine. And then they give a recommendation to the church on whether they should ordain that man for the ministry. And they're going to interview him on his family life and go through the Basically, 1 Timothy 3, they're going to interview him about his ministry experience. They're going to do extensive interview over his doctrinal position. And that's called the ordination process. And then we can say, I'm an ordained minister. Uh, unfortunately, just like with other forms of, of, uh, of there, there are paper mills for these too, okay? Just like there are for other degrees and other ways of having clout. Um, there are paper mills for this. And so some churches don't do that process at all. Ours is very developed in the, in the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. We have very uh, clear guidelines for ordination, uh, but they aren't consistent. Because, and so some churches ordain uh, without a convenient counsel. Uh, some will do it against counsel uh, recommendations. Uh, and then you have people that self-ordain. I'm self-ordained. You know, now you call me reverend. And by the way, that's what the term reverend means. It means that they're an ordained minister when they use the word reverend. But you can ordain yourself. Did you know that? So you can add reverend to your name. Uh, and so you guys don't call me reverend, and you won't ever see me use the term reverend. Some people use that term, but I don't. Okay, because here we go. I've never been ordained. Okay, and so I've never gone through that process. So I am not an ordained minister. I offered myself and it was never followed through on. But that's the process we use to have others have their stamp of approval. Now, did I go through some process? Yes, as a missionary, I went through probably a more extensive process than ordination to get through my mission board. Okay, because I had to go through the doctrinal thing and the life thing, a family thing, qualifications. I had to do that with a whole council on, on uh, the mission board to, and then they gave the recommendation to my church who then gave me a licensure to preach the gospel and sent me out as a missionary. And so that is the, and if you go to my office, you will not see ordination certificate on the wall because there's none, no such thing exists. You will see my licensure from Abbey Road Baptist Church in Elyria, Ohio. 
And when they stopped supporting me, I wrote to them and asked them, are you rescinding my license to preach the gospel? Because that's the authority by which I minister. And no answer came back. So I don't think they did. And, and so we have this help and this cooperative help. But in the process of bringing a pastor into a church, we need to do more than just say, are you ordained? You need to say, well, who? And we need to talk about how that process occurred. And our, is that ordaining body, is that licensing body um, of like faith and practice to ours? Because if you're licensed in the Presbyterian church, you're going to have a lot of problems trying to be pastor of this church. Not just organizationally, you're going to have problems theologically, correct? I hope. <laughs> All right, and so that process is a partnership, and we should be involved in that. Recognize the Holy Spirit ultimately is the one who calls us to ministry by gifting us and by inviting us to it. But even if I have the calling of God and don't meet the quali- claim to have the calling of God and don't meet the qualifications, you cannot be a pastor. Period. There are many, many men out there, pastor and day, who are disqualified. They are extraordinarily good teachers. They were previously very good pastors, but they became disqualified, usually because of their family life, because they're not faithful to their wives, or the wives weren't faithful to them, or their children were in rebellion. Okay, this is, um, they didn't rule their homes well. Uh, they were greedy. They had all, their, and churches say, oh, but we don't want to lose you. Well, you've just disregarded God's word. And so um, we have this requirement that even if you have a calling and giftedness, if you disqualify yourself from those lists, you don't belong in the ministry in that capacity of pastor, elder, bishop. doesn't mean you can't teach or have other capacity that other members can have. You are not, you know, you don't put a big mark on you, the cane mark, and, and you can't do anything. But uh, you have no business being a pastor if you're divorced. Period. End of discussion. Zero. Shouldn't even be an issue. And so we have the Holy Spirit gifting and calling. We have the partnership of leadership being involved in this process of identification and, and affirmation. But ultimately, it is the church that has the authority then to say... Um, we recognize the Holy Spirit's calling. We recognize the uh, um, credentials of having other church leaders. And, and we uh, see God leading you to be our pastor. Uh, but again, this is a relational uh, ministry that uh, is done poorly. And why is it done poorly? Because... You would never think to get a pastor as long as I'm here. And I would never think to lead you to get a pastor while I'm here. And that's a mistake. And that, those transitions should not be like, well, now we don't have a pastor, now we can bring in these candidates. It should be a much more thoughtful transition of saying, well, I'm getting old. And we should be thinking about bringing in a new pastor. And that doesn't mean I have to leave before you bring in a new pastor. That, that's, I don't find that anywhere in God's word. 
you know, that I have to, you know, go away for you to get another pastor. No. And I appreciate there are some churches out there that are, that recognize that and will participate in the transition. And then it becomes pastor emeritus. Have you ever heard that term? Pastor emeritus means he used to be our pastor and now he's kind of retired, but he's still here. And pastor emeritus are great in churches. And I got to serve under one. I was a pastoral intern serving in a church with a pastor emeritus who had responsibility for me. That cool? So he had a regular pastor, not the youth pastor. There's a youth pastor, whatever. So I had the pastor, and we engaged somewhat, but it was the pastor emeritus that, I mean, this retired pastor Duncan took me under his wing, and my office was next to his office. My office wasn't next to the pastor's office. It was pastor emeritus. I'm the intern, and emeritus was my primary guy that I engaged with about how to do ministry. And so for a year, I got to be with primarily with him. And kind of funny, because he's retired, so he doesn't have to come into the office at all. He only came in when he knew I was going to be there to engage with me. Yes? Not in the sense that we do today. No, we don't, not in that sense. We see them um, develop from within, but we do see that they were sent out from churches to be trained under Paul. Uh, We see similarly... Uh, disciples of John, we know them from church history that became pastors, uh, and so we, we know Polycarp was a disciple of John. So he was trained by John for the ministry, and, and so we have these guys in historical record. We know that they were trained by one of the apostles, uh, and so each apostle trained other men, and that's what Paul tells Timothy to do. You get some men together, uh, identify them for ministry, and you train them. We have delegated that to Bible colleges and seminaries. And that's a very artificial environment. It's artificial in two directions. First of all, you can get all the book learning you want and still not be able to relate to a church very well. And it's artificial secondarily because you have instructors that aren't connected to what ministry is really about. So you have problems at both ends. You have students who are getting book learning of theology, but not really ministry experience because their professors aren't really pastors, they're professors. And then you have these guys jumping into churches and a church role as a pastor is all relational. 90% of what I do is relational, including my preaching. Because I have to preach to you. Right? Right? And so if I'm disconnected from you and not in a relationship with you, then it's going to affect, I, I can't, I, I'm not going to be able to minister very well, and I'm always going to have frustration. Um, but if I have a loving relationship with you, then ministry takes on a whole different role, because now it is relational and not dictative. So I'm, it's not, I'm here to dictate to you these, this information you don't know. It's we're going to learn this together and minister together. Any questions? Correct. And there, there are some abuses that are out there. There's no doubt that there's guys that get their own concept of theology and then they get their own guys around them and, and train them. But, um, and that's why the International Partnership of the JRBC is so valuable. But yeah, they all have their own little Bible colleges around 
Um, and what you think of a Bible college, what they think of a Bible college is very different. Okay, what they think of a Bible college, I go in and teach modules, and they're thrilled to have that, uh, and to go in and teach a module, and, and they'll sit there. But I'm talking to, you know, couples that are in a church, and some of them are serving. They're serving in the churches in the region, and so um, Pastor Reddy has gone to a modular thing that is scattered throughout the region. Instead of sending them all to a campus, he had set that up, and it's failed. That concept has failed, so now he's doing, or he's sending the teachers out to all these locations where the pastors send their people to be trained and to get them in modules. And so then they go home and do study, and then the, the so he's got the professors, the teachers, who are also pastoring, by the way, um, out there trying to teach. And so when someone like me comes in and they want to do a module, um, I'm like, Okay, and here we go. And I know what that requires of me. I know what that's going to be. I'm going to stand here and teach until they stop listening, which is usually all day, you know, until they have to go home and get supper because uh, they'll have lunch there. And so, um, uh, yeah, we have other, uh, there are other ways of doing it that are out there in Christendom, but uh, the American way of <laughs> you deciding to go to college and majoring in Bible and then letting me know somewhere down the road that here is foreign to the scriptures. It really is. And the idea, and, and, and let's be also remember something. When Jesus said a prophet is without honor, except in his hometown, that was um, not a good thing to say. Okay, that was a rebuke of Nazareth that he could not do much in that town because they didn't honor him. That prophets aren't honored by their home village. That was a rebuke. That was not, well, that's just, you can't pastor the church you grew up in. Nonsense. Because pastoral job is primarily relational, and you know everybody in the church because you grew up here, right? Or you've been here for many years. And so developing those, and what I appreciated when we were there with Scott and uh, the Archuletas, um, we had several of the young men that were sent by their church to this school with the expectation they're going to turn around and go right back to that village because um, that pa their pastor had been murdered. So here's Anoop. He's coming in. And he graduated that year we were there. He's not one of the pastors we were supporting, but Anoop was there. We got a good relationship with him with the knowledge that he was going to be going back into a village that had burned the house down that his pastor lived in with his pastor in it. Okay? And so he was sent to be trained to go back and be the pastor there. And the village he grew up in, same way with Pravadas, Pravadas and Karnataka. Um, he was in Andre Pradesh because he was serving under someone for a number of years uh, and with someone. Then he went out into his home village in Karnataka, a different state. And that's where we built the church, where we went out for that dedication, and where he's ministering today. And so we should have some concept of that um, different than maybe the American model, corporate model of selecting a pastor. But I want you to see the partnership. That was a lot more than I planned. <laughs> I was going to get through this in the next two pages. Uh, 
the church should recognize that other elders who should have a personal soul. You have really four entities when you include the pastor. He should have a desire to do it. He should be qualified to do it. Holy Spirit should be calling on him to do it. And by the way, when the Holy Spirit calls, I don't see in God's word that he lifts that call. Okay? Um, and my, when I offered myself ordination to the pastor of, of Abbey Road, um, the first pastor, Pastor Turner, this was his statement to me. He says, let's let you be in the ministry for a little while. He says, we have too many guy ordained men selling life insurance. What was his statement? Let's make sure that you're going to stick with it. So maybe if I called him now, he would be willing to ordain me. I've been at it for, for 35 years. Is 35 years enough, Pastor Turner? He is still alive in Michigan. He's retired. Um, but that was his statement. His concern was there's all these reverends walking around, got ordained, and then left the ministry. And... And then when I went back under another pastor, they weren't ready to do that. And so, um, but that process of bringing a pastor in is a precious one, but we should be looking also to say, well, does, are we growing them? Are we growing pastors in our midst? And, uh, and again, the Bible doesn't think, say we should have dozens of them walking around, but um, there should be disciples of. Okay, every pastor should have a discipled one. And, um, and I've offered that to several men. And uh, you know we had an intern here once. And, uh, and the impact on him has, has just been phenomenal. And when we went and visited him in Iowa, we went to the conference, he, he, he just said it again. He was like, the time I spent in, in New Mexico is, has defined who I am as a pastor. Well, he was only here for a summer. And for three weeks of that, I wasn't here. Two weeks, two weeks of that, I wasn't here. But Bud Johnson, Pastor Johnson was here. Pastor Emeritus, Bud Johnson, yeah. Those are good guys. You need Pastor Emeritus's around um, like that. And I praise the Lord for those guys in my life. Bud Johnson uh, and a few others that were just extraordinary. Well, we didn't get nearly as far, but I hope it was fun to just talk about the pastoral office, and we're going to get into deacons next week, and, and we'll get into the membership, and then maybe discipline as well next Lord's Day. All right. Any other questions? I, you can't offend me, really. We might have, uh, now at Charity, I know that Every, um, a couple of times I did have them do a vote of confidence. I, don't, I didn't know that we did that here. We, we had a church recognition council. So we had pastors, because the GRBC requires a recognition council for you to be organized church to come into the GRBC. So we had pastors from Arizona, and my supporting pastors were invited, and they examined our deacons and our constitution. It wasn't for me personally, it was for our church to be recognized. Yeah, they're old people. Yeah, you were just a little one. That was 20 years ago. Yes, and that was in my basement. We did it all in the basement there. We had a little table set up and a panel, and we 
and they inter- they interviewed um, our deacons and and uh, engaged them and myself and our doctrinal statement. Yeah, we did the same thing up at charity as well. But um, and that's very similar to what an ordination council is like. Very similar. Yeah, we didn't have the blood of Christ. Yeah, in our doctrinal statement. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, the, particularly in the category of familial relationships. Um, yes, and that's always been a question of uh, that has been addre- that has been brought up. That happened before I was a Christian. All things are new. I'm a new creature, um, and that's all passed away. Uh, but when we look at the office, uh, the the one thing I keep bringing out is that you're to be an example and you are to be blameless. That word is a powerful Greek word that says the world should be able to examine the, your, you as a person, your history, and, and recognize uh, that God has had his hand upon you. Uh, and if I ask today, if unbelievers looking at a pastor with that kind of checkered, and I'm not saying you have to be a perfect person growing up, but when it comes to the marital relationship, that transcends that transcends your salvation experience. If it doesn't, then every time one spouse gets saved, they can automatically claim to dissolve the marriage because the other spouse isn't saved. And so the marriage relationship, that's why I wanted to take marriage out of the realm of religious and recognize it as social. It's a social law of God for all men. And so your marriage matters, um, and God makes you one flesh, whether you were married in a church or a justice of peace or on a ship or, or with a tribal ceremony in the middle of the jungle. Um, God makes you one flesh, and that ma- and that matters, and so that requirement is certainly there. Obviously, Paul considered himself the worst of sinners as a murderer, but um, and and um, but the expectation is in, in those lists is that this is going to be the qualification. Uh, the husband of one wife is usually the issue that, that's brought forward, uh, and. This has been a long problem because in missions, we get into cultures where they had multiple wives. Not divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. We have multiple wives in an evil way. That is the evil way of having multiple wives is divorce and remarriage, multiple spouses. The acceptable way before God is to have plural marriages. And so um, we would have guys get saved who had three wives. but And they want them to serve as a deacon and I was like, well, you can't. You're not the husband of one wife. Well, I'll go kill two of them. Is that God forgives murder, but not? Well, we have to teach better. Okay, we have to teach better and say you can still serve in the church, just not in this capacity. And I'm convinced that the early church had those requirements. There's plenty of ample evidence that there were plenty of people who are probably apt to teach, but that's not the only requirement. Just because you can minister. Um, in this leadership role, God wants a standard, a high standard, and those are listed for us. 
And that one particularly um, is carried from your, even before you were saved. Can a drunk get saved and serve? As long as he's not drunken. Okay? Because um, drunkenness is on there. You can't be given much wine. And so um, if that was your past, you got saved and you've been measured and not have that in your present, um, then that's great. It's going to be part of your testimony. But in the marriage, and that is why, um, that's probably the one in that category that people always ask. And we would hold that that needs to be firmly established because it transcends your salvation experience. Otherwise, the only marriage is, huh? It is, it, it goes beyond your marriage experience. In other words, your, your salvation experience does not dissolve everything, everything in your past, right? When it says all things are new, your new creation in Christ Jesus, it, and you have uh, HIV because of homosexual activity before you got saved, does your HIV go away? Not necessarily. Consequences of your past are still on your life but you have a new perspective, you have, a, you have a new standing before God, and while you may not be able to minister in certain capacities in the church, and these are very small, this is a pastor and deacon, um, doesn't mean you can't minister at all. There are many other capacities of ministry in the church. Okay? And so we have um, marriage, though, uh, is affirmed. The Bible affirms marriage and so if you're married to an unbeliever, what are you supposed to do? Women, if your husband doesn't believe, disobeys the word of God, what are you supposed to do? Be quiet. Right? Be quiet. Submit to them. Pray for them. Be witness. Okay? Men, if your wife doesn't, is not a believer, dwell with them with understanding, the Bible says. We're going to see that in Peter. You dwell with them, you live with them, and you, you lead them, and you pray for them. So there's no, you can walk away from marriage because they're not a believer. That is nowhere in the scriptures. And so that's why it means, transcend means to, it's above. So the marriage relationship um, is still there from your past, and that's not what is entailed in being a new creation. That's a spiritual truth, um, and your marriage is not a spiritual spiritual matter, it's a physical matter. Correct. Right. If you're a widow, if you're a widower and get remarried, that is certainly one wife. You're free to marry. The Bible says that. Um, in India, they interpret that passage, by the way, that you can't really be a pastor until you have a wife. That you have to be the husband of one wife. So you can't be a single pastor in India. They don't call them pastors until they get married. Kind of interesting. Huh? Yes? Well, in heaven and about whose wife will she, you know, if she has three, seven husbands and they all die, whose wife will she be in heaven? You're like, you're ignorant. Um, <laughs> basically, yeah. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer, and we can have some good discussion. About we need to save my wife. She's been at it for an hour. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for time and your word, and and we spend a little bit more time and just, we want to be biblical. We want to be 
uh, what you would have us to be. We thank you for these relationships, these roles that you have for us in our, in our church and in your church. And Lord, we pray that we might be uh, desiring to be idealistic. The world says just be practical, but we know that you have a standard that you would like us to strive toward, and we pray that we might do so as a church, individuals, as, and in leadership in our church. We uh, recognize that this is your design, not my design. It's not church history's design. It's your design from your word. We pray that as we seek to exercise that, that we might do it in a manner that pleases you, that your spirit uh, takes ownership of and directs and guides and empowers. Again, we thank you for your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.